Welcome to I Ask, Therefore I Am. In this article and podcast series, I talk to experts who have a deep knowledge about certain subjects, subjects that are important for human society. Together, we're looking at the current situation, the potential and the challenges that are still holding us back. We then, of course, look to co-create solutions. We're making this world a little bit better, one question at a time. Hello everybody, in this episode I talk to Radu Mircea Giurgiu. I have known Radu now for a couple of years and every time in the past years I've looked at where he came from and how he developed his career, I'm always thinking, damn, that guy is making his dreams come true. Radu, he was born and raised in Romania, he did his master there in controlled environment agriculture and then went on to do his PhD in Germany on medicinal plants and controlled environment agriculture. It's around that time that I met him. We were both volunteering for the Association for Vertical Farming and we created a project group called AMI. In that group we brought together many amazing people and created a concept called AMI or AMI. That's an abbreviation for aquaponics, mushrooms and insects. Basically, we wanted to connect all existing controlled environment agriculture food producing technologies to create a high-tech ecosystem with no waste. Or at least as little waste as possible. With the team, we did a lot of research, we did a lot of thinking and modeling and from that we created banners, infographics, videos and a white paper and after that even a lot of workshops all around the world. In that way, we spread the idea of ecosystem farming or Amy farming and helped the industry to adopt it. Everybody in the group was super enthusiastic about the ecosystem concept, but only a few made it their personal purpose. One of them is Radu. Another is Seppa Salari, whom I will probably interview soon enough in the future. But Radu, already during the Amy work, he got funding for his own research project in the University of Agriculture and Veterinary Medicine in Cluj-Napoca in Romania. The project was called PlantGeek and he and his team investigated the technologies to monitor the aquaponics ecosystem. Of course, Radu didn't stop there. He also got trained by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation to become a circular economy pioneer. He also became an ambassador for Todd for Food, but most importantly, and most impressive, he got funding for his postdoc and got connected to the European Space Agency and their amazing project around creating an ecosystem in space, the Melissa project. Within this huge European collaboration between many companies and organizations, he started working for Semia Ipstar in the Netherlands. This company takes space technologies and develops applications here on Earth. Yes, space exploration does make the world a better place. In this podcast interview, Radu and me talk about why ecosystems are so important for us, humanity. And we talk, of course, about the Melissa project, about his work at Semilla and PlanGeek. And of course, we discuss the challenges for the implementation of an ecosystem or circular economy and how we can overcome them. The word you will remember from this episode is, you guessed it, ecosystem. 
enjoy this amazing interview with Radu Mircea Giorgio. Thank you, Radu. Thank you for wanting to talk to me. You're welcome, Jeff. I've been knowing you for four or five years now. And maybe since more, I think. Maybe more? Yeah. I think 2015, 2016, yeah. something like that. I was still doing my PhD back then. So it's like mm. six years, seven maybe. And from the beginning, we were talking about ecosystems, man. But then in the, in the time of vertical farming, we were like in the vertical farming movement together. Yeah. Saying like, okay, vertical farming is the future, man. It's so awesome. It's so cool. But we were also addressing one of the biggest challenges for vertical farming. That's the energy use. Mm -hmm. If you only focus on plants, we were like, okay, we want to make this vertical farm sustainable. Yeah. We want to make them resource efficient, like everybody in the vertical farming movement claims. So we started thinking, we actually got a, a, an awesome team together, the <laughs> yeah. Amy team. We were nine in the, at, at, our, at our peak, were we were we? nine. We were nine beautiful wow. people from all around the world. Nice. Yeah, it was amazing. I, lo I really love the Amy team. I still, I still get emotional <laughs> when I think about it. But uh, for, for people not knowing what Amy stands for, stands for aquaponics, mushrooms, insects, trying to bring all those technologies together in vertical farming. Mm -hmm. and make it into an ecosystem. We yeah. wanted to replicate a natural ecosystem. Big ambitions. Big ambitions, yes. That's what everybody also told us eh, in the movement. Yeah. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> <laughs> Why is an ecosystem so difficult? Uh, because it's so complex. Because you have many organisms and each organism has different needs and different environment and different resources. And then the next thing is not to just grow them separately, because you could do that, but then to interconnect them. That's even more difficult because mm -hmm. one output of one organism, so one system, have to feed as input to the next one and then to the next one and try to get a closed loop, mm -hmm. which happens in the nature all the time. But yeah, as you know, it's more uh, difficult to replicate that with our means and technology. I, I would say we already kind of have an ecosystem, right? Society doesn't see ecosystem as a whole. It just mm. sees like, okay, you have a company and there's supply of the resources and there's demand of the resources. Yeah. And generally along that line, there is also supply and demand. And it creates, or society is a kind of uh, very... I would say chaotic ecosystem, mm -hmm. but the problems that we kind of need to address, and that's what we're talking about today, is that we're focusing too much on the on the individual companies, yeah. and that is very linear thinking. So it's supply and demand, and yeah. we don't think about what where does the supply comes from, or you do not get rewarded. We now think about where our resources come from, but we do not yet get rewarded for the fact that we have green energy, for example, mm -hmm. or you do not get rewarded as a consumer yet that you buy with a sustainable company that's more expensive. Now, what do you mean you don't get rewarded or how would you get rewarded? Well, because, you know, in a natural ecosystem, yeah. the reward is you survive. Yeah. Right. And but there is no unless you believe in a creator, there's no intelligent design behind the whole of an ecosystem and just kind of developed through the survival of the fittest and yeah. everybody who could reuse a resource 
really got rewarded with mm -hmm. life. Basically. Yeah. And in, in our society today, you don't get rewarded if you use waste. We just kind of throw our waste away mm -hmm. and the whole of society and the whole of nature suffers because of it. And, and that way, that's why I always say like, we will survive, like nature is going to survive us probably. Yeah, for sure. Be because, or whatever we do, we will survive, nature will survive. Yeah. Because we will adapt anyway. When we when we get our, when we fuck everything up, basically, there will still be enough people to live in tribal communities or to survive. Or there will still be nature. But the problem will be I human think, suffering, right? Yeah, there will be a lot of people that would suffer, and especially yeah. the more unfortunate parts of the world, they will suffer the worst. We also our time span is too short to understand the rewards or the pay you have to do. Because mm. if your, cons your, your consumption or your, your choices that you do, they don't really come with the, with the, the true cost yeah. of what, what, you're, what you're doing. And it's easy to kind of wash away what, what's really your individual impact in a bigger scheme. So that's why I think it's easy for us to, to cope with the thing that you know, we're not doing such a big harm to the environment because we're just a, you're just Jeff yeah. uh, buying a new jacket because you're <laughs> cold on the street without understanding all the implication on the value chain of that jacket. And that's true. And it's easy to cope with it because you're not going to probably... I think the, the risk for you, it's so minimal right now because you will die soon <laughs> in the... <laughs> relative to the Earth's uh, age, that you, you, you don't see it as a, a big risk. I still think we will see a lot of problems coming in our generation still, in our lifetime. In yeah, lifetime. It's already so. happening. It's getting warm in Belgium, is one. But it's, yeah. it's, that's nothing compared to what's going to come. Yeah, indeed. But anyway, to go back to the, the reason why we should focus on ecosystem thinking, and instead of just letting capitalism <laughs> do its thing via supply and demand via the market we need to think broader yeah we need to have an ecosystem mindset because we need to save human lives mm -hmm. and we need to save nature because we are dependent on nature of everything it gives from oxygen to water yeah. you know we have to save save nature in order to save human life yeah. it's not one or the other and we have to understand nature for that yeah. and that's why we come to you radu <laughs> <laughs> Because I think like so many people hate space travel. So many people, I see so many people on Facebook like, ah, oh, we should not focus on space travel, mm -hmm. not focus on rockets because there's so many problems on this planet. Mm -hmm. Well, they do, what they don't realize is that space travel and the goal to go to space has already brought so much for society yeah. and for this planet. And there's something amazing happening that's like not known enough. Everybody sees Elon Musk with his rockets going to space, but nobody understands how hard it actually is to be in space and to keep human life in space or on Mars. Yeah, exactly. And how much it contributes to our understanding of life. <laughs> and we actually should have more attention for the Melissa project of the European Space Agency. That's where you're part of. Huh? Yeah. Can, can you give like a brief introduction to what the whole Melissa Foundation, the Melissa Project is about. Yeah, so Melissa Project, it's an 
Melissa, it's an acronym. It means microecological life support system alternatives. It's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of, for acronyms in the space sector. And it's a project going on since 30 years or more. There are a lot of institutes, research centers, and organizations from all over Europe, Canada, and other countries involved. And the whole scope of this project is to develop regenerative life support system to sustain the life of astronauts on long-term missions. So, well, to, to put it in simple term, you create an ecosystem in space so the astronauts can breathe yeah. and eat. So astronauts need oxygen, water and food. And those are the three main resources that you have to be sure that they have for long-term missions. And if you look now at uh, International Space Station, they get a lot of supplies from Earth because mm. it's orbiting around Earth, so it's still doable, although still very expensive. And they still do some uh, recycling, so they produce oxygen from water or they recycle large parts of the water uh, in the ISS. But food, for example, is still mostly, if not all, supplied from Earth. Then if you go to the Moon or even further to Mars, then it's almost impossible to transport all the supplies and also yes. to time with the possibility of uh, sending the rockets there and yeah, all the mass load. No. Then you have to see how you can produce it there, either on space stations or on habitats on other yeah, places like Mars or, or the Moon. Mm. And that's the challenge. And that's what Melissa is investigating. Yeah. Like food and oxygen is super important. Huh? Yeah. Um, so how, how far is the Melissa project from actually creating like an ecosystem in space? Mm, I think it depends who you ask <laughs> from the community. Uh, it's a complex uh, loop consisting of different compartments and each compartment degrades the waste produced by the astronauts. And actually the astronauts or the, yeah, the astronauts are part of the ecosystem. So they are considered one element of the loop, which we normally don't really consider ourselves or humans as a part of it, just consume the whatever we produce. The ecosystem, let's first describe the ecosystem of Melissa. That might be, yeah. like it's, let's start with the humans. Everybody knows humans, right? Yeah. Let's start there. So, okay, let's start with the humans. The humans consume food, water, and oxygen. They produce waste in form of uh, black water, yellow water. We, we, you call it so we, nice. We nicely you define it. it. Shit and poo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's poo Shit and, and urine. Yeah. Other uh, wastewater, like from washing or hygienic purposes. And they also produce CO2 to uh, breathing. <laughs> and, okay. and then these are waste streams. But yeah, we, we normally here on but, Earth, we... But waste is a resource for which is the compartment, the next one? So the next compartment is the, the first compartment is degrading this waste to uh, more, uh, to other, um, let's say, value or compounds that go to the second compartment. These are all biological uh, systems with uh, microorganisms that feed on this waste and then they produce further outputs. So they feed on the human poo, urine... Yeah water yeah co2 too or the co2 goes somewhere no, else the co2 is also fed to the production of algae or plants ah, okay, okay. because they need it um so these these streams are 
are degraded step by step until they become resources for food production. So okay. the, the waste contains uh, valuable resources as nitrogen or phosphorus, which are uh, yeah, elements that the plants need for growth. And those, these this elements from our waste can be recovered in different forms that they can be used for food production. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is the, the water in the ways we produce and that can be also recycled and cleaned to different processes until you can use it up to drinking water. You can use it for other hygienic purposes but you can also use it for drinking water. So then from all the waste you produce, uh, one thing is that you don't have to disregard it or put it aside, which is also difficult in a space environment. Uh, it also creates a challenge. And the other thing is that you kind of recover everything valuable out of it so you can reuse it. And then it means that you significantly reduce the, the need of mass that you have to transport to sustain the life. Because you reuse all, everything constantly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I recently read that the ISS always loses some air. It's not completely airtight. Mm -hmm. So if you just do a long-term space mission, there will never be 100% reuse, I guess. Every, always no. something will... But how, how high will the efficiency be, do you think, of the first systems? Like uh, The efficiency, I think, is high in, in terms that most of the waste, if not all, it's reused. Every system creates part of output that it's reusable for the next system, but then also a part that it's kind of also their own waste. Then you try to find ways to reuse that waste even in the same system or in another one or so on. So there's always going to be some waste. So it's, I think it's very difficult to, to make it totally self-sufficient. So the amount of waste the astronauts would produce to be exactly the amount of resources produced for them for them to be supported and then it kind of creates an, uh, an ongoing uh, cycle that never ends. I think that's maybe impossible. There's going to be always waste. So then you, you would have to supply some mass, but then it's... it's so it's a, a degenerative cycle, basically. Yeah. Because you could also say, if you would be on a planet, that would be a different story, right? You would have resources there, the rocks who have carbon, which could be... Mm, it depends on... On the, on the, yeah, there are some limited resources that you could use. Uh, it's called the in situ resource utilization. Uh, and then, yeah, you can try to use some of the resources there that are very limited compared with what we have on Earth, mm -hmm. but still helps the, the whole uh, life support. But then, this kind of Melissa approach is to just try to recover everything valuable from the ways that we produce the ultimate circular economy basically yeah. Yeah. and they the inspiration for the melissa ecosystem comes from a lake ecosystem if yeah i'm not mistaken indeed because right? in a lake ecosystem you have all these processes that melissa tries to use technology to replicate them yeah. so you have gas exchange you have a nutrient exchange you have all the microorganisms from the lake contributing to degrade this waste produced by the fish or other animals or the decaying plants or everything that's carbon that is then reused by the plants in the, in their growth and yeah it's a it's a closed cycle and it's a very efficient one uh, i don't know if productive but pro productivity can be defined in 
different ways. But uh, yeah, and that's the inspiration. That's the well, it's productive in the way that humans can breathe and eat. Yeah. And it's the if you say it's like almost if you would create the ecosystem and it's 99.5% yeah. efficient, you can still go on for a hundred years before that small system breaks down. Something yeah, like there's a lot of modeling on that to see how much you would support the life of astronauts for how long and so on. I don't know exactly now the figures, but yeah, they're, they're working on that. And you know that the, these space missions, they are really like, very well calculated and because of all the constraints and yeah. all the challenges and all the problems might occur they are really closely calculated so yeah if you don't calculate people die in space huh? yeah <laughs> super the space tries to kill you yeah. every second so then you have to be prepared to have like uh, a lot of plans to just cope with that and that's the beauty of the whole thing i think like space teaches us how valuable life is mm -hmm. And that's where you come in with SEMIA. Like yeah. it's, a, it's another acronym derived from Melissa. Yeah. It's like a, your job at SEMIA is to take space technologies and space understanding and bring them to applications for Earth. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So SEMIA is the company that's also part of Melissa, the Melissa Consortium, and it's mandated to transfer the technologies developed for space application to Earth application. And you might think it's a bit weird that we first develop technologies here on Earth to be used on space. And then once they are proven there and they work there, you think like, okay, let's bring them back to Earth. But it actually makes sense because the space missions uh, and yeah, the space environment tries to kill you. So it has a lot of constraints. That means you have to develop these kind of technologies that Maybe on Earth you think that they are not so useful because we don't have so many constraints. But then if you look at Earth on a more holistic level, we still have resources that are depleting. We still have issues like the climate change. So these are also constraints that will affect or our food production or agriculture industry and all other industries. So then if you take those constraints in, in concern, in your modeling of living, of sustaining the life on Earth, then you still need this kind of technologies. Yeah, because Earth is a spaceship, right? Yeah. And we need this spaceship working uh, as efficiently as possible. Yeah, indeed. You, we have to look at Earth. And you can start from from small case. You can start from an organization to a city, to a country, to going all the way up to uh, Earth to just see it as a spaceship that mm. has inputs and outputs and you have to see it as a life-supporting system for its inhabitants. I think in the climate change debate, that's not, an, that's not used enough. Just saying like, it's, climate change is not about nature. It's, it's about us too. Yeah. It's about, I actually got the first time I, read, I saw that, it's, it's funny, because I saw that in Stargate Atlantis, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the Stargate series? Yeah, my brother is a big fan. No, I'm a so big much. fan too. They should, they should bring Stargate Universe back. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it was somebody saying in Stargate Atlantis, saying like, global warming, it's not about saving the Earth, it's about saving humanity. Yeah. It's saying about human lives. And that's good. But back to Samia, what is... 
What are do you have examples of technologies that you are now bringing to the market in in Europe or in the world? Yeah, there are a few examples. Uh, we are now working on some pilots with uh, using some technologies growing purple bacteria, which is a microorganisms that grows on a, also on waste streams. So we grow on a brewery waste stream, try to cultivate this bacteria on this waste and then with the bacteria bacteria can be this bacteria can be used on different levels it can be a protein source for feed industry for example or for yeah protein intake for humans it can be used in life sciences it showed that uh, it can lower cholesterol and it can also be used as a fertilizer for plants and that's what we try to to look at how this bacteria can be used as a fertilizer so we use the waste stream of the brewery it also cleans the water to up to a level yeah. so the water can be reused for other purposes but then through this growing of the bacteria on this waste it actually creates a biomass that you can use as fertilizer for the plants yeah. instead of mining it and yeah and the, the the interesting thing is that we are investigating this fertilizer it's not just that because it fixes this nitrogen and phosphorus and other things that then the plants can take back it also supposedly and that's what we're investigating improving the health of the plant so it creates kind of a it's a biostimulant it's not just a fertilizer for growth but it's also biostimulant so the plant is less susceptible for diseases or pests or uh, yeah, it, yeah that's huge man yeah and the, you investigate your job is investigating the scientific part of it right yeah the biological part of it is there also like investigation as your business i guess it's also yeah. an economical part yeah we, yeah we do something similar in amsterdam also piloting a, a, a similar system and uh, yeah the one part is to optimize the system and bring it to a higher a technology readiness level and try to bring it closer to market maturity because it's still a lot of translation of this technology because for earth uh, you have different conditions you have different economic context you have different needs mm. and all those things factor in the business plan but we also work on the business plan and the de development plan and see how these technologies we kind of know what's the impact that they can have environmentally uh, but we have to look also economically how they fit in the market that's yeah. quite a challenge is that the biggest challenge Science is easy. Economics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would not say science. It's easy, but it's we know step by step how mm. to get there to make the system optimized, and then uh, we, we are looking at the scale ups of the system. What would that mean? How, 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 what kind of changes you have to do for them to work as efficiently as in the lab and things like this? These are challenges in itself, but we know step by step how to reach there. But economically, I think it's a it's a big challenge to find its place in the current economic context. Yeah, because how do you compete? You have phosphor fertilizer. Yeah. How do you compete with the other phosphor fertilizers that are being just dug out of the ground, yeah. which are not sustainable because yeah. they also produce a lot of toxic waste, for example. And there is not an infinite amount of them either. If you look just a simple math equation, uh, it's the fertilizer that we would produce through this Melissa technology, through the purple bacteria, would be more expensive than the synthetic fertilizer that, for example, a farm, a vertical farm, or even a normal farm can, can buy. So 
as in a, in a simple uh, equation, it's not profitable for the farmer to buy our fertilizer. But we have to look and at the real cost accounting of what it means to buy a synthetic fertilizer for your farm and what it means to get this fertilizer produced, let's say, from the waste stream. And yeah, it also has the other benefits that now investigating, as we said, the biostimulant, which is an added value, so then maybe you can yeah. convince the farmers. But in the end, I think it, 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 uh, it just goes down to the policies, so the governments. If, yeah. they, if this kind of uh, recycle or yeah, recovering value out of waste streams, waste management and, and all these kind of policies coming from European Union and then locally to the governments of the country and to the regions and then the cities, if they encourage these kind of practices and these kind of solutions and they find their place in the market. And also their added value that should be added on the final product because consumers, direct consumers will not buy the purple bacteria biomass but they will buy the plants grow by yeah. the biomass. And it has, they have to understand that they're part of a, an ecosystem rather than just a linear consumption production. I, when I was at uh, Potence 2, when I was into the mushroom part, uh, the story is mushrooms are nature, nature's waste recyclers. Yeah. And for example, we can grow oyster mushrooms easily on coffee grounds. And then you, need, then you go to the coffee shops and then you ask for their waste. They're happy to get rid of it. Yeah. But actually, when I was thinking about the economic models for a circular economy, and it only, only would make sense if we as a farm would pay those coffee shops yeah. for their waste, for their resources. But that was almost impossible because already as a farmer, it's impossible to, yeah. to make a decent profit. But that, that shows the challenge. Do you think... Do you think our whole economic system must change for that? I don't know if you want to talk about society or economic changes or... Um, I'm not sure if the whole economic system must change, but it definitely has to adapt to, yeah. Yeah, to the requirements or to... It has to adapt on one side to the innovations. It has to embrace these kind of new ways of doing things. Mm. Sometimes it's just you might have a great idea but it just cannot penetrate the market because it's so stuck in the yeah business how business as usual. But then on another side it has to yeah it has to adapt to the to the difficulties that we have that we're facing, the climate change, the mm. issues with uh, resource and yeah waste management we create more waste we have no resources it's just if if we have the technology to link that we create so much waste that we have we don't know what to do with it anymore in the same time we lack resources that we need we have the technology to use that problem of creating waste in a solution to create resources so why not doing it i think it's just even if we not have all the difficulties with climate change and all the problems we should still do it because it's there and we have the knowledge and technology to do it and it's also the the longer we wait to do it the mm. more problems it will create yeah ecosystems will be the future and so focusing on it is already an investment in the future so yeah. what you do is like it doesn't mean that you're like super successful economically right now but there will come a time and i hope it's sooner than later that it will be needed and I hope you're already economically successful before it is needed 
Yeah. Because yeah. that means that the human suffering is there again. Yeah. Because it's too late, basically. Yeah. Then. And we should be ready before it's needed, because I think that then it's too late. Mm. It's anyway already seems sometimes too late, but... There's an overarching kind of ecosystem thinking mm. missing. There's like a, a holistic a, view of mm. the whole chain because we're everybody's focused on their small part and they mm. try to do it as good as possible, which means as profitable as possible. And that's normal. Everybody wants to make ends meet and be successful in their part. But it's very difficult to see that you're part of a big system and have this systemic thinking. Mm. And that's uh, I think that's the yeah, that's the change that has to happen. That to show everybody that they're part of the system, to encourage this cooperation of all the elements of the system mm -hmm. and have this always this holistic view. But you said in the beginning, because ecosystems are super complex. Yeah. So do you think we as humans could cognitively understand a global ecosystem or do you think <laughs> we will need artificial intelligence, for example, to help guide us? Uh, I'm a big uh, believer that artificial intelligence will help because at one point, the data we can generate, and that's a good thing, we can generate a lot of data to understand these kind of complex processes, but then it goes over our possibility of understanding. I think artificial intelligence is better suited to kind of get all these huge amounts of data and then make sense of it. We, with our knowledge, we can just steer it to the right direction. Mm. You already see it with the uh, with coronavirus problem, eh? yeah. all the information that's everywhere around the world and all the politicians need to process it and one month they say, oh, it's that, and the other month they say, oh, it's that, and then the next month, oh, it's that again. Like, yeah. there's so much information already that our leaders today are, it's almost impossible to process and to make decent decisions. And this is, yeah, and this is a, an event which really stresses out and, and forces politicians to make decisions. Mm -hmm. But then we, at, to go back at the climate change, we don't see it like that, although it might be even worse than the, the corona crisis. There's not the emergency feeling for some reason. And although there's a lot of debate and a lot of talks on the issue, it, it lacks that kind of emergency to force uh, the leaders doing decisions and, and also not just taking decisions, but, but uh, fueling uh, organizations that are capable of bringing solutions. Yeah. For example, all the subsidies yeah. of Europe, the farming subsidies of Europe, that's a huge amount. And all of them go into, for example, just normal farming. Yeah. If all of them would go into, of the parts, the research funding, for example, would all go into trying to bring ecosystem farming to make that a reality. I, that would be already such a huge change eh? if everybody would be like us, Radu. <laughs> <We'd be laughs> I don't like, know okay. if everybody or all the funds should go because I think that would also that's also not an ecosystem thinking that everything goes on one side. Even there's yeah there's need I think more investment in these things, but I think it's also if you want to have an impact, you have to do it at scale. And then now the big scales are the yeah, monocultures and. Uh, yeah, animal uh, agriculture and things like this. So you can, instead of just trying to replace that complete, completely, you can just add elements of ecosystem to improve them, their yeah. efficiency, uh, their environmental impact, and then go from there. 
That's true. And you're a scientist, so let's go back to the scientific point of view on that. How would you like connect a city, for example, the waste streams, the human waste streams? How would you connect them to the food system? Let's yeah. not think about <laughs> any regulations about food safety because that's now a big barrier. Yeah, would... it's but it's an important barrier. Yeah. You have to have a, a food security yeah. kind of barrier, otherwise you would. Uh, yeah. You need safety too. You need. Yeah. If you poo, you cannot have one person being diseased and then yeah. spreading it through the food chain and diseasing everybody yeah. or making everybody sick. But how would those? On a large scale, yeah. for a city of Ghent or Antwerp or yeah. Brussels or whatever, how do you see them interacting with the city, with the rural areas, and with the global economy on a scientific <laughs> scale? Well, that's that's a big question. <laughs> um, let's see. So, if you want to try to make a city more circular, we look at it: uh, the outputs they create as waste. And how can that be converted in resources so back as input in their food production? So then the output is normally the waste water that goes from toilets and kitchens and showers and, and so. The difficulty is if all that wastewater goes to a single pipe. Mm -hmm. So it's always better to separate because each of the separate stream has different value and then you increase the efficiency. Also remove uh, challenges like contamination. So for example, feces, the black water is more contaminated, so you should, for example, just try to uh, produce energy from that mm. instead of try to create fertilizer that could be contaminated and then create problems along the, the chain. And then you can use the other waste streams for nutrients or water recovery. Mm. So that's a good way to think. But then you need the infrastructure in the city to allow that. Right now, um, the old buildings and all the old pipe infrastructure is all together going then to a water treatment plant, which is not as good as it would be separated. The new developments, they now try to make these separate lines, which already help. Do, do you think there already could be some regeneration if, for example, you have a big apartment? Yeah. They already have some energy recirculation or nutrient recirculation in that apartment would that be economically feasible or is that still too far yeah that's what we look at we look at like from small scale to large scale so you can try to make this kind of recovery systems maybe just to household or then maybe to a neighborhood and then yeah, it, it has different implications in the optimization of the system the efficiency and then the economic layer so these are all questions that we try to look at, but I think there will be more and more this kind of um, decentralized systems. Now everything is centralized, so mm. all the city brings the wastewater to this water treatment plant, which where, where they can also recover a lot of things. But it would be more efficient if you have decentralized systems that can kind of produce the resources back in that community. Yeah. So like each community would then have like their own bioreactor running yeah. the pee of people yeah. uh, or their own mushroom uh, growing facility yeah. with cardboard or with, with other lignin holding yeah. materials yeah and then you have to look at the operational parts sometimes the operations are also costly 
because of the reactors, you need some experienced people to run them. Then you have to see how much you can automate them. The more automation or software hardware you get in, the higher the investment and yeah, yeah, the cost it, all, raise, yeah, yeah. it all balances in the cost. But I think it's also important to kind of engage the, the local people that benefit of the system because then they understand uh, their impact. The other difficulty is that if you're on International Space Station, you know exactly what went in the astronaut's body, so what food they consume. So it's kind of very predictable what comes out, and it's also kind kind of linear. While in a community on Earth, it's very dynamic. Yeah, that's a, and you can have people on antibiotics, for example, yeah. or on hormone treatment. Yeah. That, uh, and how, that goes how do we deal the, with that? There are also uh, technologies that are at different levels of uh, readiness uh, that are developed for removing, for example, pharmaceuticals or things like this from, from, from the waste stream. But that right, makes the cost rise. Yeah, of course. But it's important mm. because you have these dynamics and these unknowns. And yeah, it, it's, it, it will solve itself by having more of these systems running and learning from them and getting the data and optimizing based on that data. And that's why it's good to involve artificial intelligence because mm. that can make sense of all the complexity of the data and the correlations that sometimes can overwhelm you. But I think, uh, yeah, there are these kind of challenges of, and a lot of unknowns. But if you make a balance, I think the benefits are still higher. That's why still worth to, to go to this direction. Still fun also. I think you show the complexity by saying, if we talk about antibiotics or hormones, yeah. that this all, or we only talked about food, and now we, we have to separate piping, so we talk yeah. about housing. And all of a sudden, we also talk about healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's uh, that that shows the complexity. And there's much more industries that are yeah. connected. Yeah, indeed. And it's also how much data you can get, and then the also thing with the data rights. Because the more data you get, the more you can make sense of this complexity. Then how you get the data is also interesting and challenging. Now, you t now that you talk about data. You uh, did a project, Plant Geek, yeah, and uh, about aquaponics and data collection. Yeah, what is the biggest? How do you collect data, and how do you deal with the data? And what are the challenges on that specific field? Mm -hmm. So, with the Plant Geek uh, project, um, we looked at how we can use quite affordable hardware, sensors, and also software, open source software, to collect as much relevant data from these systems, which is like fish, bacteria, and plants, in order to understand how to optimize the whole food production system, which is the aquaponics. So it was challenging to first develop the hardware infrastructure and to make it uh, reliable to know that we can trust those data points and they're not going all over the place like, because of the sensitivity. Yeah, for example, if you have a pH meter, you need to yeah. know that it's the correct pH and yeah. not deviates after two weeks. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that was a big challenge, but once uh, we made it work, then we, the challenge was to understand the data, how to interpret the data, because you have a lot of data sets for different parts 
different systems. And then you have to use your human brain to make sense of it and what's relevant and what's not. And very important to look at correlations without thinking it's causation. So you don't say like, okay, if I feed the fish more times per day, my, my bacteria will work harder and they'll produce more nutrients for the plants. Maybe it's a correlation, maybe it's not causation, so to make sense of that. So we also then looked at artificial intelligence to help us with that. And we actually, our like final work on the project was the most interesting one, which was not planned, which happens often in research. They don't plan something, but that's the most interesting thing. But the one thing that we didn't really uh, monitor enough because we thought it's constant, it's the feeding of the fish. Because you feed the fish based on a recipe, kind of every time the same, based on their body weight. So it's like 3% of their body weight, you give feed every day. Okay, so we knew the formula, so we consider it kind of a constant, or at least monitored enough that we can factor in our results. But what we didn't consider is that the fish are living organisms that don't have a really predictable or linear digestion yeah and consumption and sometimes they eat more sometimes they eat less and the leftover of food would change the whole aquatic parameters and those change was actually significant enough to yeah make changes in the whole system so we thought if we could just control that part we could actually control the whole other segments of the chain and in the end we developed really rudimentarily because we tried to get funding to work on this uh, issue more but to monitor the feeding process of the fish with cameras and then the, the system will learn how much the fish eat and then we'll also learn other data like pH or what's relevant dissolved oxygen and compile everything together and then make more precision feeding so we'll, we'll be able to predict that tomorrow the fish will eat less or more that will make everything more efficient, less waste, and more production. So that was very interesting. Unfortunately, we couldn't uh, get more uh, funding for following up on this idea, so we're still looking for that. Mm. Is the aquaponics system is still there in the University of Cluj-Napoca? Yeah, it's still there, but it's not operating at the time. You said you used artificial intelligence to uh, make sense of the data. Yeah. Did you build your own artificial intelligence, or...? How, how did you do it? Yeah, we worked with some experts in the field that use some uh, platforms like from Microsoft Azure and other things. But basically, we just feed the data to a system and it's like teaching a child. So you, you, you show a, a cat to a child and you say it's a cat. Mm. And then you show another cat and say it's a cat and so on. And then the child will learn that that's a cat. So next time you go with the child on the street and he sees a cat, he will say, oh, that's a cat. <laughs> the same like a, a system would do. Yeah. So we would give the data and we would say what the data means. And then the system recognizes the data under our supervision. And when we are satisfied how good the, the system learned the data or how good it understands the data, then we can use it in the automation process. Because then we can trust the system can take decision because the system understands the importance of the data. Yeah. So if the system understood uh, how much the fish ate the food, it can give 
the input to the feeder to stop feeding that day or give more food or things like this. Which is, is really big because otherwise you need a person to sit there, uh, check how much they ate and then take the decision, okay, I will stop the feeder or not, which we, what we were doing. And if you look at an, from an economic point of view, you have to pay a full-time employee to do this kind of work, which will yeah, make an impact in your business plan. But if you have this kind of system, it helps a lot. And it's not, not that you just replace workforce, because that's not the goal, but it just makes everything more efficient. It would produce more, uh, less waste, because we would, less, we, will, we would waste less food because we know what fish mm. eat. Everything would be more efficient. And, uh, it's a great example how generally artificial intelligence sees more than humans. Yeah. Or, uh, and in a way, like, even if you would do it yourself, you would be there whole day yeah. feeding the fish, checking the fish. And you could fish. not do anything else. Uh, you could not focus on the love for the fish. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. We work with an aquaponic system, which is... Maybe this is really small percentage of a natural ecosystem. It has three organisms at most, maybe some pests and other things mm. <laughs> to have to include more. But we worked on that and it was already humbling enough of how complex, you know, yeah, how many interactions in just that small controlled environment aquaponic system we had. So I think yeah, on a really natural ecosystem, I would... I was saying that often with my colleagues that I would like to just go to a, for example, a lake and just put sensors everywhere mm. and get all the data and then try to figure out how nature works. <laughs> Nobody will find that, think... by the way. What? <laughs> Nobody will find <laughs> that idea, by the way. A Melissa project because they, you know. Yeah. That's that's why it's important that we incentivize this kind of understanding of ecosystems or that we incentivize to create ecosystems, yeah. to, to create them. But sometimes it's interesting just to follow this curiosity because I agree that we have to find applications. So research has to find applications in the real world to show why it got funded, because mostly it's funded by public funds, by taxpayers. But it's also important to just learn more, to increase our knowledge of how the world works. And it will always spin off in, uh, we can use that knowledge for that thing or that thing, but we should just learn more about the world we live in. That's true. I, I, I love history, for example. I just watch yeah. endless amounts of history videos on YouTube. And you don't apply history immediately, but you learn from it. And, you, mm -hmm. and the understanding of what other people have done, be it good or bad, you can apply in your own life. Yeah. Uh, kind of endless wisdom in our own society and and when we look at research on nature yeah we need to look on what is so interesting about nature and try to look at that and the incentives will come after i think mm -hmm. like people will say oh there's indeed something in nature yeah. Not destroying it, but actually supporting it. There must be something there. It has to be also made sexy. <laughs> yeah. You have to have good storytellers and good people with communication that transfer this knowledge because sometimes it's very dry from a scientist. It's true, yeah. It comes like 
raw figures and insights, but they're not packaged in a nice story that kind of inspires people and want to know more. That brings us back to the Melissa project. Why is everybody <laughs> talking about rockets and not about creating ecosystems to go to Mars? Do you think they need to do more marketing or? Yeah, I think it has the potential for much more outreach than it currently does. Because it's basically some people like, oh, nature is cool. Let's try to mimic nature yeah. in space. And it's, it's, it's very geeky, but and at the same time, it's so amazing. Yeah. And why, why don't people, like, why does society not recognize the amazingness about that yet? I don't know, because every time we did uh, projects out in the public, like with the Semia Sanitation, which is a spin-off, we went with our technology to Dutch festivals. So we were taking the urine from the happy participants <laughs> and we were uh, producing fertilizer or cleaning the water on spot to just prove the technology because festivals are really like villages that you try to make mm -hmm. them more circular. They have a lot of input <laughs> in terms of waste. So that's a good uh, way to stress uh, the, the systems. But anyway, the one point besides the scientific exploration in the festival was the outreach to the people because they came and they asked what is, what is this and we were explaining and everybody was super inspired and they wanted to know more and, and they excited. Could, they could drink tea. Wait, basically, you people peed, you grew mint, you, you yeah. treated the water and then you grew mint with that water and the fertilizer and then they could drink the mint tea, right? Yeah, so that was that was the concept, but we were not treating the water immediately because it takes longer time. So we mm. would collecting the we were, we were running the systems, but we're not using the direct water because it's also the food security issues. But we were uh, communicating the whole concept from yeah from P to T <laughs> by <laughs> by giving them tea and uh, yeah it, and explaining them the concept and see how they react and. Of course, the mostly they react like uh, this is a weird concept that you will use things that you don't want to hear about, like pee and poo to grow plants and then eat. But once you explain the processes and uh, the things behind it and the, the inspiration from the nature and the, the, always the funny thing was that if I ask anybody if they would eat some crops grown on a fertilizer produce from pee or poo, they would say most likely no. But if I say, do you think that an astronaut on Mars would have to use their own waste uh, resources to produce their own food because there's nothing there, they would say, yeah, yeah, they have to sustain their life. Then if they have to sustain their life on Mars, there is nothing, why can we not do the same on Earth? Where we going? Kind of on the same direction of depleting all the resources. And then it really changed their minds of seeing like, Actually, yeah, we can do the same here. You took the ignorance away. That's good. Yeah. And you, you could actually even take this further. Right? You could say all the water you're drinking today yeah. has once been somebody's pee. Yeah. <laughs> this was, I'm drinking Jesus's pee right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of ecosystems. Thank you very much, Radu, <laughs> for this amazing interview. I learned a lot again today and I hope many other people will be inspired and more understanding the ecosystem way of thinking. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. It's always really a pleasure to talk with you about these things and geek out.
The pleasure is mine, really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast and you want me to ask more and better questions to more experts, then you can now support me via www.patreon.com slash As a Patreon, you get to participate in this podcast and the articles. For example, you can propose subjects to me for the articles or you can tell me which experts I should talk to. You will also, of course, receive my eternal gratitude. My name is Jeff Anaker. This was I Ask, Therefore I Am.